财富自由，富是父亲的富。两个中年爸爸闲聊美股、流行，另类育儿经。财富自由想象是百灵果跟古玩的结合。告诉你谁是 Magnificent Seven 科技七五四？你该买瘦瘦比双巨头吗？从马斯克到泰勒斯，从华尔街到好莱坞，我们都追得上。新的一年听新的 Podcast， 让我们一起财富自由。富是父亲的富哦。Global Voices on Taiwan. Welcome back to Global Voices on Taiwan. I'm Rath Wang, a news producer and host. Hello, everybody. My name is Vincent Chow. I'm the director of the DPP's Department of International Affairs. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be exploring with you on how the latest world events from near and afar, how they impact Taiwan, and how this island nation shakes the world. We invite international journalists, experts, and policymakers to talk about Taiwan and share their thoughts on current events here. Joining us today is Cleo Pascal from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Cleo is a senior fellow and expert on Indo-Pacific security. Previously, also at the UK's Chatham House and India's Gateway House, both the most prestigious foreign policy think tanks in their nations, she is also an investigative journalist as the North American special correspondent in India's Sunday Guardian. Thanks for coming on, Cleo.、Um, you've talked extensively and shared with me as well on quote why securing India against China matters to the world. Can you talk about what that means in the context of Taiwan, given how India is a bit far away from Taiwan in terms of geographic distance? India might seem far from、uh, Taiwan, but if you're in China, they're both neighbors, and they're both、um, strategic、uh, threats in a way that is almost existential. Both of them represent successful democracies. Uh, that undercut the justification for the Chinese Communist Party. And case of Taiwan,、uh, it shows that people of ethnic Han origin can certainly handle democracy and do wonderful things with it. And in the case of India, it shows that a country of over a billion people can be successfully run not by an authoritarian dictatorship, but again through democracy. So it may seem, if you're looking at Taiwan from India or at India from Taiwan. You may seem far away, but if you're looking at China and going out, they're、uh, both actually not just neighbors, but existential threats to the justification of the Chinese Communist Party. And as such, the Indian strategic community understands very well that should the Chinese Communist Party try to go after Taiwan and invade and subsume it, India is going to be next, or vice versa. So they see the strategic linkage as incredibly strong, and that's why, for example, you recently had three former chiefs of defense branches going to Taiwan, and that was public. But I think there's a lot of other things that are happening that aren't as public. Well, Cleo, thanks for sharing that. And I mean, if we if we kind of take a few steps back and and start by looking at India's role in the Indo-Pacific、uh, policy or Indo-Pacific strategy, I am curious your thoughts. What does India seek to benefit in terms of the Indo-Pacific strategy? I mean, why have they become such a critical pillar of the strategy? And certainly, what do you th- see in terms of prospects going forward, and how India、uh, can or will or may play a larger role, kind of here in the region? 
So there's a, if you're going to currently, because of the way China is interacting, which is, a, I would argue, a very aggressive and disruptive way. If you're going to grow your own economy, you have to do two things. First, you have to block the malign influence, and then you have to build your economies in, in your own way, with your own ownership to it. And India has been very good at both. So they're very good at understanding how um, Chinese political warfare works. They've seen it happen in Sri Lanka, in the Maldives, in Seychelles, in Nepal, um, in, in Myanmar, all around them, they can see this happening and they're very good at countering it. So they, after the battle in, in Galwan, where the, where the PLA troops attacked the Chinese troops in June, 2020, one of the first major retaliations from the Indian side two weeks later was banning TikTok and WeChat. They know how the political warfare works. So that's the blocking. On the other side, they're trying to build in a very comprehensive way, bringing in allies and giving economic alternatives to being sucked into Beijing's economic orbit. And you saw that very clearly at the recent G20, uh, which was hosted in India, where India really made a big effort over the whole year to host different events in different parts of India, to do think tanks. Um, policy papers, and even to make sure that the African Union was included as a full member of the G20 to try to create these linkages that are not beholden to Beijing, but also not beholden to some of those Western economic models that also haven't necessarily benefited them completely, especially if you're an emerging market. So creating these alternatives, and it's not a non-alignment, it's a realignment within the context of an international rules-based order, but on terms that are more viable for emerging economies, because if you can grow your economy, your democracy becomes much more resilient and uh, things can, can grow up uh, based on that. So they're, so they're helping in the Indo in context of the Indo-Pacific in two areas that are essential for most of the countries in the Indo-Pacific, which is political warfare blocking and malign influence, and on the economic front, creating new alternatives that can bypass these other systems that haven't been helpful, especially in the context of China, BRI, that sort of thing. What about in the context of the G20? We've seen India take a leadership role in the absence of China. Do you feel what implications does that have in terms of the region and for Taiwan? So the Chinese absence was, so Xi Jinping didn't go to the, that final meeting. There are other Chinese representatives there, but China doesn't play well with others. The model that India is proposing is much more of a collaborative. The, the motto was one planet, one family, one future, one earth, one family, one future. Very much a, we can all grow together. Whereas uh, the Chinese model is much more, uh, it all centers, it hubs and it, China's top this, this top, yeah, and you've got the spokes, right? So China really couldn't, if Xi Jinping would have shown up in Delhi, if you can imagine it, he would have been playing second fiddle to the host, which is a, which does not work with in, in that CCP mindset. So they, because of the way that they've set up the structure and the way that they interact with other countries, they actually can't collaborate in that way. And so he couldn't show up. They, they put out the map that claims everything. And then he, he didn't show up. 
so it, it was a very clear demonstration of two different visions of how countries can work together and a model for the Indo-Pacific. What does it mean for Taiwan? As countries start to have more economic options and independence that gives more latitude for defending themselves, like you're seeing what happened with the Philippines, and more, I would hope, more latitude for collaboration with Taiwan, which is something that's in everybody's best security interests. And if you're as a, as a leader of a country like the Philippines or wherever, if you can create enough domestic stability so that you can withstand the po- internal political warfare that China will throw at you, then it uh, makes it more easy to create uh, more overt linkages with Taiwan. Great. And just following up on this issue, so I think what we've seen, and you mentioned this delegation of um, Indian uh, former security officials, but um, what we've seen in recent years is this growing relationship between Taiwan and India. And that's been, I think, focused a bit on trade, a bit on security, um, a bit on people-to-people relations, technical exchanges. And, you know, all taken together, I do think we've seen robust examples of how this relationship can come together. I'm curious. I mean, how you see the outlook for this relationship? What are some of the things that India is going to look for in terms of building this relationship? What do they expect? How could this benefit both countries? And I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that, Cleo. So the first time I went to Taiwan, which was probably about 15 years ago, or give or take, there was an Indian delegation in town meeting with Taiwanese officials. And, uh, but it was being done through Indian Americans and Taiwanese Americans. They were kind of fronting the conversation and the discussion was quite frank. And the context of the discussion was, uh, from an Indian perspective, we don't want a lot of Chinese investment in India. We know it comes along with that Chinese investment, but we need economic growth. So we like Taiwan as an independent country, but you know, we don't care about Taiwan because you don't care about India. So if Taiwan invests in India, which would help Taiwan companies, because you're pulling out of that susceptible Chinese supply chain anyway, that would give us a way of building this relationship and giving us an economic alternative to China. That that was the argument. And so you, you create these economic corridors that help build uh, trust and give political will for um, for strategic engagement. Um, what started to happen, and that did start to happen to a certain degree, but what we saw, for example, with the Taiwanese plant that was uh, iPhone parts manufacturing plant that was attacked in Bangalore recently, was uh, Taiwanese didn't want to come to India to work in particularly large numbers. And so in the case of the, I think it was a Winstrom plant, if I'm not mistaken, uh, but I could be mistaken. It, they, um, they were bringing in mainland Chinese as managers. And, uh, the culture culture. <laughs> yeah, well, the, they have potentially different priorities. So there is not necessarily, if you are um, a, a mainland, if you're from China, and the Chinese Communist Party has control over your life back at home, which they do. And, uh, you know, part of your remit is to make sure that this factory isn't a success. And you know you'll be rewarded when you go back home for making sure the factory isn't a success. 
because that factory is direct threat to China's control over global supply chains. You want to make India look like it's a failure in terms of replacing China and global supply chains, then your motivation for making that plant functional might be very different. Yeah. So there was this attack at this plant that was sort of linked to labor issues. But, you know, there's a very big question about whether the entire situation was at least in part manufactured or spurred on by interests that wanted to see it fail. So the Taiwanese investors may want one thing, but unless there's a, a complete vertical, uh, everybody on message for why they're doing what they're doing, then there's openings for this. As I mentioned initially, this malign influence, you have to block the malign influence and then you can build. So in some cases it's been very successful in India, but everything that is a success between Taiwan and India is a threat to Beijing. So unless you also incorporate the blocking while you're building, you're going to have situations like the one we saw, whether it was directly related to that as a cause or not, that's consistent with the sort of thing you'd expect Beijing to want to happen in that relationship. Cleo, I wanted to draw attention to another area of your many expertises, the Pacific Islands. And maintaining peace and stability is in the interest of everyone here. And Taiwan's an island nation. It's part of the Indo-Pacific. You've recently wrote, Time to close China's back door in the U.S. And one area of particular interest is the Solomon Islands, which we believe you just came back from. Do they regret switching ties from Taiwan to China? Well, and, and I think to be clear, I think the people of the Solomon Islands, I mean, how did they view the situation, you know, in light of what's happening in Honiara these days? There was, it was never um, put to public opinion. It was not part of a campaign platform. Um, there were commissions that were put together by the government that were ignored. Um, it was initially a very small group of people, including the, the prime minister, that decided to, to do the switch. Now, th this comes to, um, so, uh, you know, and, and in some cases, like the entire province of Malaita, after the switch in 2019, issued a communique saying, we don't want to deal with uh, CCP-linked businesses operating in our province. Um, and they give a whole bunch of reasons, including we believe in freedom of religion and we're very concerned about, you know, China's, uh, how China interacts with it, with people of faith, that sort of thing. But what happens when you have countries, and this is more a question for you guys, when you have countries, the Pacific Islands are good examples, that switch or recognize Taiwan, the PRC never goes away. They keep mm -hmm. people on the ground. They keep yeah. looking for opportunities. They keep building those relationships. But when the Solomons switched, almost all of the Taiwanese stuff packed up and went home. Yeah, it, it was. It, there was only the case of when the that premier, the premier of Malaita province, got sick, yeah. and um, uh, the Australians wouldn't help. Nobody would help him. But President Tsai personally out of compassion and humanitarian intervention, got involved and made sure that he could come to Taiwan and get the health care that he needed. But what would have been ideal is then he gets sent back with the sort of medical equipment that and training for, for Solomon Islanders that could mean that his people, which is what he really wanted, could get similar kind of health care. You know, it's not that expensive. But this is, this is, some, this is a kind of a question for, for you guys, which is, you know, you, do you, there was a case, for example, very clear case with the Federated States of Micronesia, where the president wrote a letter explaining, yeah, and saying, detailing 
why he wanted to recognize Taiwan. And then nothing happened. So what do you, what do you, I have my own theories, but what do you, what do you think about the, those sorts of situations? Well, I mean, frankly speaking, in the case of FSM, I think it was President Panuelo, and I think he was at the very, very end of his term. And I think at that point, he was already confirmed to be an outgoing president. And so I think the political difficulties uh, were present, um, regardless of what he had stated uh, within that letter in terms of not only public opinion, but sort of the new administration coming in. And I think more broadly speaking, it's this. I mean, I've been to Honiara a number of times. I've been across the Pacific, and the Chinese have a fairly large presence in countries. And like like you mentioned, I mean, um, it's within our diplomatic allies as well. And when they don't actually have diplomatic representation, they're represented through state-owned enterprises. Um, they're represented through um, other interlocutors that they work through. And what we find is that it's actually very hard to compete, um, not because of resourcing in general, just but because of the ways that they compete. And they're so antithesis to everything we're used to as um, a democracy, um, but also as a country that engages closely with Australia, New Zealand, and other like-minded partners in the region. And in the case of the Solomon Islands, for example, it was really a matter of money changing hands. And I think this has been well documented at this point, and which had opened up a floodgate of um, security interests uh, from the PRC in the Solomon Islands, including the building of a naval base, including the positioning of security forces, including supporting with armed training um, their um, police forces that have had a past history of controversy in Honiara. And I think while we can engage piecemeal, it's, it's, it becomes very difficult <laughs> for us to compete with that without compromising our own ideals and morals and our way of conducting diplomacy. So that maybe that's not a perfect answer, uh, but it's I think something that we think about often as we think about s sort of diplomatic competition there. Yeah. And, and, and this is, this is kind of the, the trying to build without the blocking and in, and in, and Taiwan is in a very, there are a lot of honest people in places like Solomon's who, as you said, you know, money changed hands, but they can't, they can't prove it. They can't track the money. They don't, they can't read the Chinese documents. Uh, it's very hard for them to prove it. And so, and one would hope, would have hoped, because for example, a lot of the Chinese bribe money then gets laundered through Australia or New Zealand, but Australia and New Zealand aren't doing anything about it. You know, the, 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 the a lot of that leadership in Solomon's um, could be brought up on charges in Australia very easily for corrupt practices. And you know, have visa um, their visas denied and their bank accounts seized, and because currently there's no downside to taking PRC money. That you don't you don't lose the money, you don't lose your assets, you don't lose your position, you don't lose your your credibility in the society. So, and, and that's the blocking part. So, unless that happens, and that is something that. Um, Taiwan, especially because of the language abilities and, and forensic abilities and things like that, is, is in a very good place to, to help with. I mean, even just collaborations between Taiwanese think tanks or Taiwanese media or think tanks in places like Solomon's, the kind of you know, track two type stuff, just giving them the accurate information that they need to, to start to impose cost. So that on that level playing field, because what you're saying is 
is absolutely dead on. You know, it's not a level playing field. But how do you level the playing field? You don't, you know, if they're bribing, you don't meet the bribes. You make it so they can't bribe and distort the society and destroy democracy in the process. And so um, that sort of thing would be helpful. On the Penuelo thing, just so uh, he wrote three letters about China. And by the time that one that was published uh, on March, um, I think it was March 10th, um, yes, he wasn't being reelected, but in the letter he details that he had been, uh, he had been in negotiations with Taiwan for a while. Um, I, I personally think, because I, I, I don't blame Taiwan for this at all. And, and what he was doing was he was actually willing to take the political hit for it. Um, and uh, knowing the personal cost, it was actually a, a kind of an act of bravery to make it public and to say, look, we didn't complete it while I was in office, uh, but I'm going to be in office. That was March. He was in office until May. And I'm, I'm willing to risk this. I personally think if, for example, the State Department had come out in favor of it, um, then the dynamic would have changed substantially. And that, that gets to a very core question, which is, and it's a, it's a hard question and it hurts, but I think it's worth asking before anybody else puts their head on the chopping block like Penuelo, because you know, you've got people like Daniel Sudani and Malaita who, who is the one who issued the Aoki communique and he's out of office now. You know, the, the federal government took away his seat specifically because he wouldn't back China's one China policy, China's version of the one China policy, which means that the electorate of the Solomons was vetoed by Beijing and who they can select to represent them. And then you have Penuela. So the question is, if there is a country now that is willing to switch to Taiwan, and the reasons Penuela gave were very clear. For example, if you recognize China's you and you have a Chinese embassy in your country, you basically have a spy base in your country. You have a forward operating base for political warfare operations. If you, if you have a Taiwanese embassy, you have a partner, somebody that wants to you know, help you develop. Very, very fundamentally different. So if a country is willing to do that, what do you think is going to be the reaction of the rest of the world? Forget Taiwan, but the rest of the world. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more, Cleo, that there's fundamental differences. And I think what the best way forward on these issues is there needs to be greater coordination uh, and communication, not only between Taiwan and these Pacific countries, but also between other like-minded stakeholders as well. Australia, New Zealand, Japan um, is has done great things in the region, particularly in the Solomon Islands, actually, but also the United States. And I, I do think that there needs to be greater support um, given to Pacific leaders that are willing to buckle the trend and say tough things and, and say tough truths. And I'm, I don't mean, you know, support as necessarily resources or or funding, uh, but really political support and support uh, for them in showing that like-minded countries have their back and, and that there is more that they can do together with us as democracies and countries to share their values and ideals than there are with China. So, um, with that, Cleo, I know it is very late where you're at, and we're very, very grateful for your time. And so India and the Pacific Islands are truly important partners for 
Taiwan, and I'm so grateful that you took the time to share your expertise and perspectives on how we can enhance those relationships. Thank you all uh, for turning in to Global Voices on Taiwan. Thank you, Cleo, for your time. To ensure you don't miss out on exciting insights from the island nation's captivating stories, make sure to subscribe on your preferred podcast or social media platform. You can also check out our full video on YouTube. Take care and stay safe.